I'm just I'm reminded again of the faithfulness of the Lord and how even in situations that where we feel disturbed or anxious or where we want to grasp for control, God just says, I'm going to give you perfect peace. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. What a great verse that is for our week ahead. Come on, you can do better than that. You can say an amen to that. You will keep him in perfect peace. How many would like perfect peace today? I'd love some perfect peace. And God says, here's the way that it happens. Keep your mind focused on me. And when you keep your mind focused on me, I will give you perfect peace. You know, Paul talks in chapter 4 about contentment in all circumstances. It's kind of become a, a life verse for me, Philippians 4.11. And um, the only way that contentment in all circumstances will ever take place is if we have a complete and unwavering confidence in the Lord. There's no way in life to manufacture peace. Nations have proven it for years. Psychologists have proven it for years. There's no way that you can manufacture peace in your heart. The only way to have the peace that passes all understanding is to fix your heart and mind on Christ Jesus. And when we fix our heart and mind on Christ Jesus, that's when peace just washes over us. Now, part of the problem in the New Testament church, and, and Philippi was a bit of a, an exception to this, is part of the problem in the New Testament church, and we've talked about this many, many times, is that they lacked peace. And they lacked peace because they had become selfish. It's a danger for any group of people. It's a danger for any church. It's not new to 2015. It's as old as the early church after the first days where there was so much excitement and people were getting saved daily and the church was being attitude and the church uh, grew and grew and grew out throughout the book of Acts. But as the churches started to get settled into Asia Minor and established usually by Paul, something peculiar and something very tragic happened. As they got established and as they were away from his ministry or Timothy's ministry or Barnabas or Paphrodite or whoever, they started to go inward and they started to get selfish. Corinth, we know, was torn apart by, by everybody kind of trying to be more prominent than the next person, and, and they had agendas, and Galatia had theology problems, and they were trying to get the Jews, the Gentiles to act like Jews, and they weren't interpreting scripture well, and the, uh, Ephesus was struggling with humility and with, with people that, that were careless about their walk, and, and, and uh, Thessalonica was, was dealing with just kind of subtle selfishness, and, and they were really struggling to, to serve the Lord and to, to keep their eyes focused on the return of the Lord. The, the problem again and again is repeated throughout the New Testament, and it's given to us to learn from it. The problem was that people got selfish, and they demanded that that church or that ministry or that even the Lord was for them rather than the other way around. Now, again, that problem's not new. The church in America, especially in 2015, has not only fought it because back in the days of, of Paul and Timothy, they wrestled with theology and they wrestled with this being an issue in terms of their practice. Now the church in 2015 has not only aligned with it, we fanned it. And we've said if we, if we cater to that, if we become a church that focuses on what people want, that that will be the answer but we've gotten it completely backwards. Because there's nothing in Scripture that argues for that. And, and, and any time we have 
disagreement or any time we have, we have something where we're trying to figure it out, we need to go first and foremost to Scripture. So if Scripture never argues for it, we can't say that, that that's what we should do. But here's the problem. The enemy constantly, constantly, constantly pushes this. And he constantly pushes it to, because he knows that if he can cause us to, to live that way, to live for us rather than living for the Lord, that he will create conflict and disunity. And in creating conflict and disunity, the devil's goal is to get our attention away from what God has done, is doing, and will do, and get the attention onto what we think. Now, that's a push in our own personal lives in terms of temptation and in terms of opposition and spiritual warfare, and it's a temptation for the church as a whole and for individual churches. And the problem is that starts to really take a toll. It starts to really wear us down and make us tired. There are a lot of things that will make us tired in life, a lot of things that will wear us out, but, but the attempt to incite disunity among the body of Christ and among marriages, and among families, it is one of the most uh, just perilous things that the devil's doing that we need to fight against with all that we have. Now, we know that, and we're experienced in this. We've experienced it many times. So we come back to this book, Philippians chapter 1, and we, and we come back to this theme of living a joyful and contented life that exalts Jesus Christ in every way. When we exalt Christ with our lives, and this will be a theme this morning, when Christ is preeminent, when Christ is first, when Christ is everything to us, living a joyful, contented life will not be an issue. It will not be hard. We won't have to think, how can I be more joyful? Because when Christ is exalted, joy exudes from us. But we also have to be careful that we are exalting Christ because if we're not exalting Christ... The, the enemy uses that to create all kinds of havoc. And he starts with creating disunity among the body of Christ. Remember, we are called the bride of Christ. I know that's a strange designation. And the whole thought of the marriage supper of the Lamb and Revelation, and we're going to be wed to Christ, some people really struggle with, like, that's just really strange. But, but just listen to the designation that God gives us. He calls us the bride of Christ. And he says, I'm jealous over you. I'm jealous over my bride. So he will strongly stand against anyone and anything, external or internal, that attacks and, and harms his bride. So even a strong church like Philippi, especially a strong church like Philippi, because the devil doesn't really have to waste his time going after weak churches, does he? They're already taking care of themselves. The devil's going to go after strong churches. He's going to go after churches that are doing the work of ministry. He's going to go after churches that pray. He's going to go after churches that are doing outreach to unbelievers. He's going to go to churches that do acts of mercy and show love to each other and disciple. That, that's who he's going to try to hit hard. And he has done it here. He's done it in other churches that are preaching the gospel. He's doing it all over the world this morning. Any church that's standing for Jesus Christ, he is going to attack. So that brings us to this passage. Because this passage is a strong calling to every believer. It's in Philippians 1, in case you haven't already turned. And, and what, what kind of hit me, and I don't mean this to sound harsh this morning, because I want this to be an encouragement. I pray the Holy Spirit would encourage us this morning, and he would challenge us this morning. 
But, but when we read this passage, what struck me is there's no getting around it. There's no exception to it. There's no nuance. There's no taking a break from it. There's no, well, it only applies on Sunday and Thursday, but it doesn't apply on Tuesday and Friday. This is a passage for all of us, and it is absolutely essential for Christ to be exalted. If Christ is going to be exalted in our lives, in our church, and in our ministry, then this is a must, okay? Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up the rest next week. But, but let's really see here from the text what Paul is saying and what he's calling us to. Because from the outset, right back in verse 27, there is a strong emphasis on intentionality. And that's born out of what we've already studied. Let's, let's walk back through our last four studies and just take it section by section. The first study was about proclaiming Christ at all times, even in times of difficulty, and how that strengthens and encourages others because Paul's in jail and he's preaching to the, to the soldiers that are guarding him and other people are hearing about it and they're getting more bold in their faith. And then, uh, I'm sorry, I got too far ahead of myself. Forgive me. The first study, you guys are like, what is he talking about? The first study, let's go back to verse 1, was about, uh, was about uh, Christ completing the work that he began. So he who began a work in you is faithful to complete it, which led to the second study, which said that love should abound, that we should walk blamelessly, we should be filled with the fruit of righteousness because God is doing that work. Then we said that we need to proclaim Christ at all times. And then last week, we studied the theme verse that, that the purpose of our life, the goal of our life, that everything we're to be about is to live is Christ. Now, if those things are going to be our goals, if that's what we're trying to do, that we understand that Christ is completing the work and that we need to walk blamelessly and that we need to declare him any circumstance and that really everything about us to live is Christ, if that's going to be the goal, then that will only happen, if we're to use a phrase from the 70s, if we're sold out for Christ. If we're living as he did, then we, if, if that's true, we're not going to have to be convinced of the first statement in verse 27 because it will be your singular desire and my singular desire to exalt Christ in everything that we do. Now, that might seem like hyperbole. Well, okay, yes, I'm a believer. I've accepted Christ. I need to exalt Christ in everything that we do. We kind of glide past it and say that's a wonderful concept. But, but I really want us to settle in on what that sentence is saying. In everything that you and I do today, every word that proceeds from our mouth, 
every attitude that we have, every action that we have, every part of ministry that we have, every interaction we have with our kids, our family, our friends, our neighbors, everything we do in terms of recreation and our hobbies and our free time, everything, every single thing is to exalt Christ. He doesn't say, well, exalt Christ in everything you do when you're gathered together on Sunday morning. But when you get in the car, everything, you know, you just do whatever you want. Exalt Christ in everything that you do. That's the purpose that God has given us. And when that is the goal, look back at verse 27, there will be no debate whatsoever on how we're supposed to conduct ourselves because we will conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of him and of the gospel. Paul is saying this has to be intentional. In other words, there's a spiritual decision to live a certain way, to not be influenced by temptation and not to be lazy spiritually and not to be careless in terms of how we walk and what we bring into our minds and what comes out of our mouth. He says, instead, everything is to be purposeful. Everything is to be about pleasing the Lord and our lives. And that's not just a hope. That's not just, well, I, I wish that would be true, Paul. And boy, that, that's a great goal. And then someday I'll get there. Now, our, our love and our passion for what he's done needs to be so strong that it pushes us into action. Because when you look at the verbs in this text, every verb is active and strong. Conduct, stand firm, strive, believe, suffer. In other words, here's the point of each of those words. Every one of them is directed away from self. Now, there's no secret to this. This is not something we have to figure out or something we have to grow into and, and mature into and understand and, and, and someday I'll get it. And if I, if I went to seminary, I'd probably... No, this is, this is basic theology 101. Everything in our lives is supposed to be directed away from self and toward Christ. So look at the phrases that are here. Maybe write them down or underline them in your Bible because they're very, very strong and very active. He says, stand firm. For what? Stand firm to be worthy of the gospel. In other words, no attention to you, all credit to Christ. He says, strive together. Why? For the faith of the gospel. In other words, it's not about striving together to gain power or striving together to gain control. It's about striving together, working together as a body, so the gospel goes out. And he said part of what happens when you do that, third, is to suffer for his sake. When? What are the circumstances under which we'd suffer? How does that take place? Well, there are going to be op opponents to the gospel. Jesus told us people are going to revile you and say all manner of things against you and even persecute you for my name's sake. So if you're really standing for me and you're really advancing the gospel, you're going to be hit. Not only is the enemy going to hit you, but he's going to send people to come along and hit you. But you're not working for the enemy and you're not working for those people. You're working for me. And then he says, fourth, be spiritually unified. How do we do that? I love this verse. By having the same mind, the same love, the same spirit, and the same purpose. In other words, nothing we're to do is supposed to manipulate the situation or, or to try to build factions. That's what got Corinth in so many problems. See, Corinth was saying, do you believe like I do? Well, hang out with me. And there'd be a little spiritual click. 
and there'd be another click that said, well, do you believe in these spiritual gifts? I do. All right, let's do that. And then there's another click that says, were you baptized by Paul? You were? Okay, you hang with me. You were baptized by Apollos? No, we don't want anything to do with you. This is the body of Christ. Now, I, but no, I, no, you believe that, and you believe that you believe that spiritual gift, or you say that you have that spiritual gift, and I don't, well, I don't want anything to do with it. So, so Corinth was just division, 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 division. And Paul writes to them and says, what in the world are you doing? Why is that taking place? Because you're the body of Christ. This is not about what you want. This is about what Christ wants and about exalting him. Now, all of these characteristics, all of those four phrases are essential if we're going to work worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because how can we talk about confessing sins? And how can we talk about self-denial? And how can we talk about yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus who sacrificed himself on our behalf and took away our sin? How can we talk about those things with others if we're still living for ourselves? There, there is no way our gospel can be effective if we're telling people you need to surrender your life to Christ and you need to confess your sins and you need to yield to him and God will change your life and he will transform you and the Holy Spirit will indwell you and your life will be different. How can we argue that message if people look at us and go, you're still looking for yourself? So, so what's the deal here? Are you a hypocrite? Are you just not very bright or, or do you just not care? Because you're telling me I've got to sacrifice my life to Jesus as my Savior and Lord, but, but you don't want to. Which is probably the reason why a lot of people don't feel comfortable with evangelism. Because evangelism brings out who we really are. So he says, look, here's what needs to happen. We need to walk worthy of his gospel. Not the gospel of Paul Rhodes. Not the gospel of you, insert your name here. Not, not the gospel of Harbor Rock Tabernacle. Not the gospel of the American church. Not the gospel of the Chinese church or the South African church. It's the gospel of, tell me, Jesus Christ. There's one gospel. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one Lord. This is the gospel. And he says, you need to walk worthy. I need to walk worthy. Look at it. Of his gospel, the one that changed your life, the one that stopped sin's power, the one that transformed your spirit, the one that renewed your mind, the one that changed your priorities. And here's why the Spirit tells us that, because even a, a strong group of believers like the Philippians knew that it was easy to fall back into self. I, I've been saved four decades. Four, it's hard to believe I'm that old, but I've been saved four decades and I find every single day it is easy to slip back into self. And it's so subtle and it's so easy to rationalize, well, this is just what's needed and this is what I, this is what I have to do and it just makes sense and I've got a lot of wisdom and, and, and Lord, this will just make me happy and all the stuff that the devil just lies into our minds and we just fall back into it so easily. And we, then we apologize, Lord, I'm so sorry, and I didn't mean to do that, and I, I actually did, but I, you, know, you, you know what I mean, Lord, and, and I'm so sorry, and, and I'm not going to do that again. I remember when I was like 20, I kept promising God day after day, I won't do that again, ever again. You ever prayed that prayer? 
And the next day, what do you do? You do it again. You're like, oh, Lord, oh, yeah, I meant that yesterday. I really did, but I'm, I'm so sorry. I am never doing that again. What happens the next day? You do it again. Walk worthy of the gospel. The Spirit gives us the tools of assessment. We just read them. They give us that he gives us the understanding of what it looks like when we're walking with him. And one of the distinguishing marks of whether we're all walking with him together is that we will be unified. Because if just one of us isn't living for Christ, if just one of us doesn't have the same passion and the same drive and the same purpose, whether it's me or you or somebody else, if just one of us doesn't have that, there's going to be some form of division. So let's assume for the sake of the argument that every one of us this morning, wouldn't this be wonderful if this is true, that every single one of us in this room is walking worthy of Christ. If that is true, verses 27 and 28 then describe how that will look. Okay? So, so here's the goal that's set before us. If every one of us, me, you, everybody else around you, we were all really walking worthy of Christ, that it was, it was true of us, we walked in confidence this morning, I am so in love with the Lord, and I have put off sin, and I'm walking in holiness, and I trust Him, and I'm serving Him, and I'm faithful to Him, I, I, everything about my life is the Lord. If that was true, here's what it would look like. Look at verses 27 to 28. We would be defending the gospel and working hard together to build people's faith. We would be unified in determining how to do that work. We would not be ever intimidated or worried in any way about the opponents of the gospel because Jesus is stronger than them. We would be aware and content that we may suffer for our faith physically, emotionally, relationally, whatever the case may be. But it will not matter because if each of us is walking for Christ, we will be driven by a shared purpose to exalt Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome when we get to anniversary number five this November, hopefully in a new building, whether it's here or somewhere else, that, that, that those five statements would absolutely describe us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if on anniversary five, we stood together and said, you know what? In the last seven months, we have stood for Christ. We've exalted Christ. We've walked worthy of Christ. We have put off sin. We've put off the world. And we are so singularly focused on Jesus Christ being exalted in our lives that we are full of joy and contentment. And this is a new day. And we go, well, that, well, that would be awesome. That would be so wonderful. What a great dream. What a great vision. No, that's how it's supposed to be today. Not, not November. That's how it's supposed to be right now. And, and if we did that, oh, you want to talk about impacting a neighborhood for Christ. You want to talk about influencing your workplace for Christ or, or leading a family member to Christ that's, that's just against the Lord. You want to talk about changing southeast Wisconsin for Christ. It would be transformative. We couldn't even understand how much God would use that. We'd reach more people for Christ just by walking around and talking than any program we could come up with. It's just a matter of being driven by purpose. And that purpose starts in our spirit. 
When we walk worthy of the Lord, it leads to advancing the gospel. And when we advance the gospel, we reach people for Christ. And when we reach people for Christ, they trust the Lord and they learn the word and they start to pray and they start to worship and then they join in with us and we move on to maturity together and then we look at the next target and we say, there's another person that needs Christ. I was thinking this week about the impact of that. If we reached one person a week, this is as modest a goal as we can get unless it's zero. If we reached one person a week for Christ, our congregation would grow by 33% the next year. If we reached one family for Christ every week for the next year, our congregation would double. They say, well, okay, that's great, Paul. Hope somebody does that whole reaching somebody for Christ this week because it's not going to be me. Why? One person a week. One family a week. See, that's why I'm excited, and I know there are a lot of different opinions and questions about this building, but that's why I'm excited about the potential of building this building, or buying this building. Not just because it gives us permanence, but because it inspires us to a greater purpose and a greater focus. It surrounds us with thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who will see us and watch us and hear us and look at our ministry and say, Harbor Rock Tabernacle is walking worthy of Christ and they're sharing the gospel and they love us and they care about us and they want to see us know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a ministry that is. If God plants us here, then that now becomes the instant focus because we've never had a place where we could say, we're here. And I can't believe how many people have said to me, you know what, if we buy this building, boy, we got a great neighborhood around us to reach. And you know what, that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. And don't you know that if we do those five statements, that God is going to richly, richly, I'll say it again, richly bless us. He's not going to go, well, all right, Rhodes, all right, Harbor Rock, now you're living for Christ, now you're really walking worthy, now you've put off the world, now you're gathering each week to call on my name, and you're worshiping me, and you're just not holding back, and you're giving, and you're praising, and you're ministering, and you're discipling. Now, now good luck with that. I'm not going to help you. He'll say, finally, there it is. There's the church. There's one of the churches in this town that is exalting my name and that is living for me. You know what? Spirit of God, move. Spirit of God, bless. Just exude everything. Pour out your blessing. Open up the floodgates. Open up the windows of heaven. And just pour out on us. That's what God wants from us. Not to hold back, not to say, well, we don't know. No, we've got to walk forward in faith. and We've got to step out of what's comfortable. So what would hinder us? Let me try to draw this to a close. What warning signs do we need to look for? Because as we said earlier, the enemy is very deliberate and he's very deceptive about drawing us away from this. So the Lord, I believe, I hope this is the Lord, put four questions on my heart this week. And these four questions, we need to ask them for every action, every word, everything that involves ministry, everything that involves the body. 
this is where we should be most protective and most cautious and most honoring Christ because we are his bride, we are living for his gospel, we're advancing his ministry. So I want to really encourage you, if you write nothing else this morning, I want you to write these four questions down. And I want you to really, and I'm going to do it too, start to assess before the words come out of our mouths, before the actions are accomplished, that we ask these four questions. Number one, is the Spirit of God actually prompting me to do this? Is the Spirit of God actually prompting me to do this? God's Spirit can't contradict Himself, and He's not a Spirit of confusion. So if we claim, well, the Spirit led me to do this, we better be absolutely sure. Because the litmus test of the Spirit moving and telling us to do something will be, does it advance the gospel and does it exalt Christ? And if it doesn't do those things, then we need to seriously ask, am I really hearing from the Spirit or am I hearing from myself? So question one, is the Spirit of God actually prompting me to do this? Question two, is my heart spiritually pure and right? Is my heart spiritually pure and right? David says to the Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. In other words, a complete cleansing. And notice that David doesn't say in that verse, search me and know me and just get rid of my sin. He says, please evaluate, Lord, and please eliminate the paths and the inclination and the habits that lead to my sin. I never saw that until last night as I was studying. I, I never thought of that verse that way. Search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. In other words, don't just remove the sin, Lord, but I still have the propensity. Don't just remove the sin, but I still have that habit that I lean to, which is why I keep praying, Lord, I'll never do that again, and yet I keep doing it again because I haven't removed the way that leads to that sin. God is not a genie. He's not somebody that just says, all right, sins are gone. All right, go back to your business. He says transformation, renewed mind, living sacrifice, death to self. So, so we need to pray, Lord, not just remove my sin, remove the inclination to sin, remove the path to sin, remove the way to sin. And that makes it much harder because now we're really getting serious. And we're saying, Lord, if I'm going to be spiritually pure, and I've got to get rid of everything that would lead me to be not spiritually pure. Number three, is my attitude humble, loving, and sacrificial? Is my attitude humble, loving, and sacrificial? Like our feelings, our attitude is very subjective, and it changes with the wind. But it's really not that hard if we're honest with ourselves to, to see the times when we're not being humble. I, I, I guarantee you, I can tell when I'm being arrogant. I may not want to admit it. I'm sure not going to admit it to you, but I know. I know when my pride's strong. I know when my arrogance is strong. I know when I'm not being humble, and you do too. I know when the words that are coming out of my mouth are critical or, 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 they're, or they're harsh or, or they're designed to undercut or, or to harm somebody. I know that, and that comes straight out of my pride. I know when my actions are not humble and exalting to Christ, 
when I'm doing something because I feel like it or I want to just make an impression or whatever the case may be. I don't need to make a whole list. You know what I'm talking about. I know good and well when I'm doing those things, and you do too. So we have to ask, is the attitude that's driving us humble, and is it loving, and is it sacrificial? Am I really trying to please the Lord here? Is, is what I'm doing right now, is this revealing my closeness to the Lord, or is it revealing my distance from the Lord? And number four, do I have a motive that's selfish? Now, this is an area where we have to be painfully obvious and ask the Spirit to do the work of a surgeon spiritually because we always have a motive. So, so back to question one, did the Spirit give us that motive? And what's the purpose in having that? One almost certain guarantee that our motive is pure is if we get nothing from it. No credit, no acknowledgement, no advancement, nothing material. If our motive is such that people come to know and love Christ more, it's a pure motive. If our motive is in some way to advance us, then there's a problem there. Now, those are very serious questions. I don't mean to be overly heavy this morning, but, but while it's not fun to ask them, we have to ask the Spirit of God, Spirit of God, answer these for me, even if the answers are a little bit confrontational and painful. But that's exactly the point. Our reticence to do this, our reticence to ask these things and to have them be revealed by the Holy Spirit shows how much of self is still in play. And that's why it's so necessary again and again and again to ask them. Now, I do believe the Spirit put these questions on my heart yesterday as I was driving, and I, was, I didn't have a piece of paper with me, and I was not going to text and drive because that's not a good example for my kids. So I said, Lord, how am I going to remember these words? How, how am I going to remember what, what you've just given to me? And I realized, and I'm not trying to be cute here. Please forgive me. I, I rarely, if ever, do this. But I realized that the first letter of each characteristic spells out the word sham, S-H-A-M. And as I was driving, I'm thinking, all right, what is, what is a sham? A sham is something, and then I looked it up, that is a fraud, a counterfeit, something that pretends to be something genuine. In other words, it's a poor imitation of what it should be, but chooses not to be. And I thought, that's a perfect word to describe what is not of the Spirit. When my heart isn't pure, my motives aren't pure, my attitude is wrong, I'm not trying to honor the Lord in what I'm doing, I become a sham. I become a fake, a fraud, a counterfeit, somebody that's acting like a Christian but doesn't really function like a Christian. Somebody that's, that's pretending to be a child of God and looks right but really isn't because my heart's not right. So if those things describe me, I become a sham. And then I try to think what the acronym should stand for. And at the risk of being completely cheesy and losing you all together, I realized that these questions are a tool of spiritually healthy attitude management. In other words, instead of being a fraud, instead of acting like a believer, but, but my heart and my spirit is really not yielded to the Lord, these questions now bring me into attitude management, and it makes me a healthy person so I can understand exactly how to exalt Christ. Now, now, moving past the stupid acronyms, let's draw final application. When, not if, when we walk worthy of Christ in the gospel, 
And when we use these four questions to assess whether we can honestly say to live as Christ, only then will there be the strength and unity and powerful ministry that Paul describes here. And we'll know what's happening. We'll be able to discern, God, you're in this, and God, you're moving. When we stand firm with one spirit and we strive together for the gospel with one mind and we have the same love and the same purpose. We'll know that there's work to be done when those qualities don't exist in full measure and there's self-serving and there's critical words and our attitude isn't loving toward each other. We've all been in those situations. Verse 28 says, we'll also be fearful. The enemies of the gospel intimidate us and, and, and our goals won't be ministry-minded and there will be a lack of joy. So it comes back to verse 21. We're done. We have to ask, are we living to exalt Christ? Because that answer dictates everything. Paul Rhodes, March 1st, 2015. Is everything that I'm doing to exalt Christ? Every word, every attitude, every action, every interaction, every aspect of ministry, my prayer, my worship, my giving, my faith, my study, my evangelism, is it all to exalt Christ? Now, I don't think there's any of us that would, that would say no. I, every one of us would say no, not, not in every area. But even asking that is valuable to us because it reminds us that the reason that Christ died and the reason that Christ rose again and the reason Christ redeemed us from sin and made us his own, listen now, was not to free us to go back and live like we used to. It was to free us to live for him. And when that becomes our passion and our drive and our motive, we will change. Our ministry will become so much more powerful and effective, and people will come to Christ.